we learn to adopt a story about ourselves, what our value is, what beauty is, what is harmful and what is normal, and to privilege the feelings, comfort, perceptions, and power of others over our own. This training of our minds can lead to the exile of many parts of the self, to hatred for and the abuse of our own bodies, the policing of other girls, and a lifetime of allegiance to values that do not prioritize our safety, happiness, freedom, or pleasure. Though mine was among the last girlhoods untouched by the internet. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi there, I'm Melissa Phoebus. I am the best-selling author of four books, most recently a craft book called Bodywork, The Radical Power of Personal Narrative. And my previous book, Girlhood, um, is about to come out in paperback. Welcome to Sylvia and me. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me today. And we are going to talk about girlhood because it is it is such a time when uh, when young girls are developing not just bodily but you know uh, emotionally and and so on. And your story um, is is crafted in such a way that it breaks up the narrative. It really puts a punch to it. And it's something that we really need to understand and be aware of. So can you, I'm going to ask you, if you could just read the um, beginning, the note you have, note by author. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. It's um, the the shortest little chapter in the book, but I probably (laughs) spent the most time on it trying to distill what people were about to experience or what, what my hopes were for their experience. So the story went like this. I was a happy child, if also a strange one. There were griefs, but I was safe and well-loved. The age of 10 or 11, the time when my girlhood, the time when my childhood became more distinctly a girlhood, marked a violent turn from this. Everyone knows that adolescents rebel, girls in particular. Still, my own girlhood felt tinged by a darkness that the story of adolescent rebellion did not suffice to explain. In the years since, I have worried the question, what was wrong with me? I did not deserve to have been so tormented. Despite how unspeakable it felt at the time, I no longer think that the pains or darkness of my own girlhood were exceptional. It is a darker time for many than we are often willing to acknowledge. During it, we learn to adopt a story about ourselves, what our value is, what beauty is, what is harmful, and what is normal, and to privilege the feelings, comfort, perceptions, and power of others over our own. This training of our minds can lead to the exile of many parts of the self, to hatred for and the abuse of our own bodies the policing of other girls, and a lifetime of allegiance to values that do not prioritize our safety, happiness, freedom, or pleasure. Though mine was among the last girlhoods untouched by the internet, I have found many of the same challenges among those who've grown up since. For years, I considered it impossible to undo much of this indoctrination. 
knowing about it was not enough, but I have found its undoing more possible than I suspected. The same way that I have taught my mind and my body to collaborate in a habitual set of practices that eventually coalesce into a skill that can be strengthened, such as throwing a softball, singing, jogging long distances, or writing. So I have found it possible to train my mind to act in accordance with my beliefs and sometimes to discover what those are. Like any process of conditioning, it is tedious, minute, and demands rigorous attention. It cannot be done alone. It is in part by writing this book that I have corrected the story of my own girlhood and found ways to recover myself. I have found company in the stories of other women and the revelation of all our ordinariness has itself been curative. Writing has always been a way to reconcile my lived experience with the narratives available to describe it or lack thereof. My hope is that these essays do some of that work for you too. Melissa, thank you so much for reading that because it does encompass what all these essays are in this book. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned how at the age of 10 or 11, life changed for you, but in mm -hmm. a way that it's, I, you once said it was like, um, you won a contest, mm -hmm. but you really lost. Mm -hmm. And it started off with the fact that, you know, as women, we, we develop and we're looking to have a nice chest and, mm -hmm. but, at 11, you developed much more rapidly than mm -hmm. most young girls. How did that affect you? What were you up against? Because remember, you said we adapt a story about ourselves mm -hmm. really for what we think we're supposed to. Mm -hmm. That's right. You know, and let me start by saying that um, I started telling myself probably when I was a teenager, that the struggles I went through in adolescence and sort of pre-adolescence weren't that bad, right? Because I have so many friends um, and I've known so many women who experienced really serious kinds of trauma, very recognizable kinds of life-changing trauma, like serious violent assaults and the like. Um, and to me, it seemed that my experiences were so small compared to those. I didn't know how to situate it except to dismiss it and to say it wasn't a big deal. And so it really was through writing this book that I looked back. And when I really looked back, I was shocked at how dramatically my life was affected by really ordinary experiences and even slightly extraordinary experiences. As you said, I developed early and had sort of a, a woman's body when I was 11 years old. And, you know, I, I experienced a kind of double bind that I know is familiar to most girls and women. Um, and for me, it happened really early where I started to get this kind of um, sexual attention that was both sort of quote unquote, positive in the sense that, you know, we live in a culture that really colludes to convince us that getting sexual attention from men and boys is a good thing. And we should try to court that. Right. Um, but I also received a lot of negative attention and from other girls who felt they were in competition with me for that attention from men and boys. And also because I was immediately perceived just because of the shape of my body as 
sexually precocious, as promiscuous. I was started to be slut shamed before I had any sexual experiences at all. Um, and then, you know, I was in this uncomfortable position of having to navigate sexual invitations and pressures um, with this, uh, you know, very familiar, it's like we all know about it, but we still don't really know how to navigate it as girls, this, this uh, sort of, as you said, this, um, this game where there's only losing options, either you give in to sort of sexual pressure, um, and you're supposed to be agreeable in that way. And then you get punished for sort of yielding to those pressures. And there's, and if you don't, you're sort of punished for that by being a prude or, um, so, you know, it, it took me writing a whole book, honestly, to really recognize the ways that that dynamic and that um, sort of perception that was projected onto me, how it really defined my relationships with friends, with lovers, with strangers for decades afterward. You mentioned the word slut um, before, slut shaming, but slut wasn't always a word that That's right. meant that. Mm -hmm. In fact, I believe in the 17th century or the 17th, 17-something or other, it was defined as a dirty woman. Can you mm -hmm. go through how it changed into something promiscuous and awful and had a sexual connotation? Sure, sure. You know, so I started, there's a, an essay in Girlhood that's all about sort of my experience being, uh, you know, what we now call slut shamed um, in middle school and junior high, um, which is a, another experience that I thought, oh, it wasn't so bad. A lot of girls experienced that. And then when I went back and sort of was being more honest with myself about it and recognizing how much it affected me, I did what I often do in my work. And I think, what is this word that is used to punish girls that meant so much and was weaponized in such a violent way against me, right? And it still sort of makes me cringe invisibly when I hear the word because of the way it was used against me. So I went and I started looking in um, um, etymological histories and I uh, sort of dug up this history of the word slut, which um, yeah, was first used to just describe sort of a bad housekeeper, you know? It was like a woman who, didn't have a very clean kitchen was called the slut, right? Um, and it just sort of sparked this thing in my mind where it was like, oh, right, it's just, it's just this word, it's just the sound that we use to push women into a certain definition of femininity, right? Because once I started to track the history of it, I saw the way it developed. Um, to describe sort of, uh, you know, a dirty room or a dirty kitchen or a woman who didn't properly knead the bread when she was baking. Um, and it took until, you know, um, the 19th century for the word to refer to a woman in a sexual way, right? Um, and there are these little branches off of it that go into sort of like early prostitution. Um, and, you know, I really sort of, awakened to the trap of believing that a slut is a thing you can be, right? That to be a promiscuous woman is a shameful thing and one should avoid it and avoid being called that. And really sort of revised my understanding to be like, oh, this is just 
like a sound people make with their mouths to try to teach women to sort of fall in line and behave the way that most benefits a patriarchal society. Um, and it was really liberating in that way, right? Because it sort of led me through this whole history that went into a lot of literature and early European witch trials and just thinking of all of the ways that our society over history has tried to control women and their bodies um, and how kind of an illusion it is ultimately. It is an illusion. And it's an illusion that, as you said, it took you writing this book. You talked about trauma and, mm -hmm. you know, most people don't realize that there are little things that are traumatic. It doesn't, mm -hmm. in fact, some of the smaller things could be more mm -hmm. traumatic to a person than anything else. A, a, a word, the word slut, mm -hmm. anything small mm -hmm. could destroy a person. Now mm -hmm. for you, you kind of adapted it to what you thought um, it, it was the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, early on, you know, you've mentioned we learn how to, to protect boys from the reality and, mm -hmm. and, you know, the consequences of their, their behavior. In fact, mm -hmm. a lot of men now who have been called out have used the excuse, whether it's an excuse or it's the way society was, uh, that they didn't, it was the way things were done. They didn't know any better. Um, right. Which, you know, as women, we've been taught that this is the way we're supposed to act. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if we don't act this way, then we're perceived as being aggressive, as being mm -hmm. a bitch, as being mm -hmm. homely, as being this and being that. And in that chapter, you called it the mirror test. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was very interesting. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so when I was working on this essay, um, I started reading about um, Charles Darwin. You know, you start writing something or I start writing something and it's like you start digging a little hole and suddenly you pop up <laughs> above ground and you're in this seemingly far flung topic, but somehow it helps illuminate the place that you started, you know? So for me with this essay, I was writing about my experience of being sort of sexually harassed in middle school. And I ended up reading about Charles Darwin um, and how, and his sort of work to um, think about how animals develop self-consciousness and do they have self-consciousness? And this other researcher developed this test called the mirror test where they would put a mark on an animal and then show them a mirror. And if the animal recognized the mark on their body, it showed that they had a kind of self-awareness and self-consciousness, right? Um, and as I was doing this research, my wife recommended that I read um, Jacques Lacan's uh, essay, The Mirror Stage, which is um, sort of analogous in that it looks at how babies develop their self-conception um, by looking in the mirror and being like, oh, wait, that's me. This <laughs> is my arm, you know? Um, and it really made me think about the ways that as a young person, particularly in adolescence, the ways that we are mirrored back to ourselves by our peer group does so much to inform our self-conception, very much like Lacan's baby or Darwin's um, ape. Um, 
when our peers look at us and send a message back about what they're seeing, like, oh, your body being shaped this way means that you're you know, sexually promiscuous or that this is the greatest value that you have as, as a sexual object. It just gets, you know, you're forming an idea of who you are. And for me, it really insinuated itself into my self-conception in a way that was um, tenacious and longstanding. And it took me, you know, it was like pretty deep into my thirties. I was still trying to tease out of myself this idea that if I, that I needed to be sexually attractive or desirable in order to have worth and I needed to be validated by other people for that in order to feel good about myself. And I know that this is something that many people, not just women, but a lot of women really struggle with all our lives. You talk about empty consent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell us exactly what you mean by that. Sure. I mean, I'd like my mm-hmm. listeners to hear it from you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in another essay in the book, I, I started investigating and following that sort of bread trail of those early experiences into my adulthood. And on kind of a whim, I went to this thing called the cuddle party, right? Which I found really cringy at first, uh, but it was so illuminating for me. And they basically do a workshop on consent, affirmative consent, where you role play uh, a stranger saying, do you want to cuddle with me? And you practice saying no. Um, and there's a lot of emphasis on not doing anything you don't want to do. I was like 37 at the time. And then you have like this sort of freestyle cuddle time with all of these strangers. And what I found was that I, even with the practice, I couldn't say no. And I ended up cuddling with people that I didn't want to. And this is me, like a lifelong self-identified feminist. I thought I knew about like affirmative, enthusiastic consent. And then I went and cuddled with these strangers I didn't want to. And I thought, what is that? And I went back into sort of the timeline of my physical interactions with other people. And I realized that I've been doing it my whole life, that it started with those early sexual experiences with boys where I just didn't feel comfortable saying no, because I didn't want to upset anybody. I wanted to be agreeable. Sometimes I was afraid that it would turn violent and it felt like the safe thing to do. Um, And then I started talking to other women about their experiences of, and when I started talking to them, I was kept saying this phrase like, well, you know, did you have any early experience, physical experiences where you consented to touch that you felt ambivalent about or actively didn't want. And that's a mouthful, right? So I was saying it over and over and over again. And I ended up just sort of shorthand called empty consent, right? Um, And it just, in those conversations, the other women just started using the term as if it was something we already knew because it was such a familiar experience. All of them had experienced it in sexual experiences, but just in everyday social experiences, just saying yes to things they didn't want to do and feeling, uh, you know, having all of these consequences inside themselves afterwards and in their lives. Um, and it just stuck. And it, it felt like it felt so empowering to, to have a name for an experience that 
we hadn't even really been aware of. We'd just been doing it our whole lives. And to name it meant that it became more possible to stop doing it and to start saying no when we wanted to. Exactly, because I don't know if you asked 100 women if 90 of them wouldn't be able to say Mm -hmm. empty consent is something that they've consented to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would... We're, yeah. we're brought up to be agreeable, to be nurturing, to mm-hmm. to be almost subservient in, in, mm-hmm. in so many situations that it takes us so long to really get that self-worth. I mean, don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. There are women who who have that from day one. I don't know a lot of them. I know most mm-hmm. It's grown. It's grown. Mm -hmm. It's grown whether from a traumatic. And as we said before, traumatic doesn't have to be a car accident, a death. Traumatic Mm -hmm. could be somebody saying something awful to you that Mm -hmm. you've suppressed for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what you've done here is opened it up for women um, and maybe for some men, for people, Mm -hmm. but women in in particular, to be able to understand that you can say no, Mm -hmm. you can look at yourself and maybe Mm -hmm. not like something. And and that brings me to another um, article that that I read that I, I, I just... I couldn't stop reading it because I know so many people in, in, in that situation. Um, and it was called Feminist Case for Breast Reduction. And sometime in 2018, I believe, you, um, you decided, you started thinking about certain things. Um, and you talk about body invisibility and the difference between respectable plastic surgery and aesthetic. Can you Mm -hmm. go into that article and how how it came about? Yeah. Well, you know, I, as I wrote about in girlhood, I had a really uncomfortable relationship inside my own body for a long time. And particularly it focused around my breasts because I'm a, you can't tell over zoom, but I'm a very, I'm a very petite person. And I had a really big chest and it got all this negative attention, but also I'm like a very athletic person. And, you know, it just, I had to like special order certain kinds of bras and it was just something that eat on me both, both literally and figuratively. It was just something that preoccupied me and brought my whole life a lot of negative attention, attention I didn't really want. And um, it wasn't until I was in my mid thirties and I thought, God, I would just love to get a breast reduction, a breast lift and reduction. Cause I really heavy breasts, really heavy, big breasts. And I, I, I started thinking about it and, and I'd always felt like I wasn't allowed because you know, I've been in a lot of therapy and I'm a feminist and I'm like bisexual. And it just felt like the prescription for a woman like me was that I needed to accept and love the body I had. And cosmetic surgery was like giving in or something. Right. And then I got to a certain age and I was like, who am I imagining judging me for this? Like, 
is it anyone I actually know? Are any of my friends going to be like, ew, why would you do that? You know what I mean? And then I thought, you know, what if I didn't have to explain it to anyone? Would I do it? And it was just, I knew with 100% certainty, absolute, I would do it tomorrow. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? Like, I'm 35 years old. I can do what I want with my body. I think I've earned that, right? Um, and it took a few more years um, uh, for sort of other reasons. And I, I decided to go through with the surgery. And I had such a great experience. Like, honestly, it was so surprising. Everything about it was so interesting and positive for me. And, and I was really sort of thrilled and shocked by that. And I had this thought right before the surgery, I thought, you know, this feels so vulnerable and touches on like my body shame stuff is so, feels like the most personal, most vulnerable stuff for me. And I thought this would make a great essay, but I'll never write about it. And I'll tell you, <laughs> I got the surgery and the day I got home, I was like really woozy. I had was under general anesthesia and I got home and my wife made a little nest on the couch for me. And I said, sweetie, bring me my computer. And she was like, what? <laughs> and I said, I just need to make some notes before I forget everything. And she was like, oh my God. <laughs> And so I'll, like shortly after, it was like I wrote it right before the pandemic. I drafted the first draft of the essay because I just thought, oh, my God, I was sort of trapped in this story of thinking I wasn't allowed to do this, having these weird superficial judgments about cosmetic surgery. And because there wasn't a, really a medical need for me to get it. It was fine, you know, but it was much more sort of psychological for me. And I felt so liberated and so empowered by the experience. And it made me go read a bunch about like other kind, because a breast reduction is like, people will judge that a little bit less than like a nose job or a breast implants. And I realized it's all the same. Like it is just absolutely up to each individual woman to decide whatever the hell she wants to do with her body. And it's not for anyone else to say what that will feel like, you know, like it really just opened my mind all the way. Exactly. And as you said, it's up to a woman to decide what mm -hmm. she wants to do with her body. That's right. Ooh. And we're talking about this now um, mm -hmm. when our rights are starting to be taken away. Um, oh. Yeah. Um, one of the things is that you mentioned that you questioned yourself who was going, you finally said who was going to judge you. Mm -hmm. And that was mm -hmm. the whole thing. You did it for you. You didn't do it for anyone else. Mm -hmm. A lot of people wind up falling into a thing where they do it for somebody else and not for mm -hmm. them. That's mm -hmm. the biggest difference. Big. Um, big difference. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, um, I applaud you. Um, I bet you you can run better or jog better or do oh my god, Sylvia! I just without, like, without <laughs> hurting yourself. Yeah, every time I sort of like jog down the street spontaneously in my little bralette with no underwires, I'm just like screaming with joy inside my own head. You know. <laughs> um, there's one other piece of the book. It's actually the last page page 310. Do you have the book still in front of you? I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's the second to last paragraph. If you could read that 
um, down yeah. to the end. Um, I think that just ties it all up. I'd be happy to. So this is from the last essay in the book, which is called Lake Halanc. As a young woman, I struck myself against everything, other bodies, cities, myself, but I could never make sense of the marks I made on them or the marks they made on me. A thing of unknown value has no value, and I treated myself as such. I beat against my life as if it could tell me how to stop hurting until I was black and blue on the inside. The small softnesses I found, however fleeting, were precious. They may have saved my life. Now I am so careful. The more I know my own worth, the less I have to fling myself against anything. When I go back, I can see all the marks that girl made so long ago. I reach my hand through the water and touch their familiar shapes. Melissa, um, if you had one piece of advice to give to young girls and women, what would it be? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's see. Um, I guess I would say that those persistent um, negative thoughts that, that we all have about ourselves sometimes that pop up inside of us, um, it's been so life-changing for me to make a little space for myself to stop and ask, is that my belief? Is that my voice? Or did that come from somewhere else? You know, like, is that really the voice that I want to talk to myself in? Or did somebody teach me to do that? You found your voice. <laughs> and I love it. Melissa, where can people find out more about you and your books? Mm -hmm. um, my website is just melissafibos.com and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at melissafibos and my books are in bookstores nationwide. Thank you so much for having me, Sylvia. Melissa, thank you. And thank you for, for opening up because there are, it is so needed, especially mm -hmm. now. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. This has been a Life of Prey production.